You know, prior to America, when the, when the Puritans, when they left England to come to the United States, obviously the literature in hand were all books that were published in England. So when they began teaching children, they were using the English Protestant tutor. I mean, a little history on the word Protestant. You know it's a pejorative term, that it was those protesters' Bible. And it became glossed into Protestant, but it was those protesters who were protesting against the church. And so in the 1690s, a Boston publishing group reprinted the England English Protestant tutor into the New England Primer. And the New England Primer uh, became arguably the most successful book of its kind uh, all through the 18th century. There was no education book second to the New England Primer. New England, because they left England, they started the New England over here. And what the authors of this book use, you can, it's all online, you can look at a PDF of a first volume copy, I've yet to put my hands on a first edition, but um, the New England Primer used uh, a number of tools to teach children reading, uh, grammar, and writing. What's often uh, missed about the New England Primer, though, it was really a book to save children. It was a book written for educators to teach children how to get saved. And most of us in this room know some of the New England Primer, even though we couldn't cite it. I bet everyone in here knows, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my... And if I should die, I pray thee, Lord... See, you know part of the New England Primer. And through rhyme and cartoon pictograms, uh, through alphabet memorization, a lot of rote memorization... They taught children the Bible, and obviously the New King James Version. Um, but the ABCs I always find intriguing because they use a one-picture cartoon caricature for each letter and then a rhyme. So and they have a picture of the Garden of Eden like a little tree and Adam and Eve and a serpent, a little pictogram, and then it says, In Adam's fall we send all. So you teach your children. A is for Adam. In Adam's fall we send all. Uh, and then heaven to find the Bible mind. Pay attention to the Bible. You want to find heaven? Heaven to find the Bible mind. And on it went. It strikes me that if you're going to write a primer to teach children how to read, write, understand grammar, and you start with the ABCs, and the first one you write is, in Adam's fall we send all, you're making a statement. Pretty good statement. We are fallen creatures that live in a fallen context. We're broken, sinful people that live in a broken world. Even though we come to Christ and we're redeemed, we're still broken creatures. We're human beings. We're fallen creatures in a fallen context. Albeit redeemed, I hope all of you have come to a faith and knowledge of Christ and Christ alone. I don't make that presumption in a group this size ever. That Many are still on their way. Many still haven't embraced Christ and Christ alone. But a redeemed sinner is a person that's broken in a broken context. The question is, how do we then live? How do we live as broken people in a fallen context? Broken people in a broken world. And that, in no small way, is the question of the book of Esther. Esther is the story of the providence of God in the midst of a very fallen and corrupt world. How is God working sovereignly, providentially, in a fallen system with broken people, some who are redeemed, some who are not, how does he work and orchestrate through providence? It's really the story of a couple 
arguably one or two faithful Jews in an otherwise completely fallen context. That's where we are. If you have a Bible open to Esther chapter 1, open to chapter 1, verses 10 and following, we'll finish the first chapter and we'll dip our toe into chapter 2 in the first four verses. Esther chapter 1, verses 10 and following. And we begin with learning, don't make the king mad. Esther chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. We're introduced to a king of worldwide notoriety, of arguably worldwide power. Uh, we've had a week-long celebration, and at the end of it, Hazuerus' heart is merry with wine. The word merry can mean happy and just feeling good, all the way to completely intoxicated. We don't know for a fact which he was. Was he just feeling really good, or was he drunk? But that's the way the term can be used. He commanded the, his seven eunuchs to go and uh, retrieve his queen, uh, his wife, and show her off. Mahuman, uh, these names in Persian are, are a little bit difficult to translate into English or transliterate into English, and we don't know precisely some of the origin, but Mahuman may very well be sort of a nickname for trusty. And if you think back when Lloyd talked about what it was to be a eunuch, uh, obviously we think of castration, but they also, these would be chiefs of staff, like a CFO today or a COO today. They had a responsibility. And if you're going to have a royal harem, it'd be pretty wise that people you can trust to take care of that harem, and it would be added insurance if they were all literal eunuchs. Well, he sends these seven proven uh, men, eunuchs, to go act as liaisons and to invite Vashti. She refuses. Now, commentaries are helpful tools. Those of you who are in BSF or Precept or study the Bible and you love to study Scripture, uh, commentaries are helpful. I love commentaries. I read widely. Lloyd and Bill and Rob and I all love commentaries. But commentators uh, are not without their own uh, presuppositions and judgments uh, and, and decisions that sometimes are wrong. Vashti is uh, depicted all kinds of ways here, as well as the uh, initiation offer for her to come, from uh, sensual and, and from nude, all points in between. The bottom line is we don't know. A, a good rule of thumb in Bible study methodology is what does the text clearly say? Now the job of a Bible student is to study scripture and see how words are used and how meaning is developed and to search out commentaries and study the Bible in its context and how it corollaries with other parts of scripture. That's the job we have as people that read and study the scripture. But when you, we get confused and lost, and, and we've all been in community groups or small groups where we're, all, we're out in the weeds, and we're talking about crazy stuff that has nothing to do with the passage. I love those conversations too. But when we dial it back, the rule of thumb is, what is the text clearly saying? What is it not saying? And you're always on good ground in your Bible study when you say the text is specifically saying this. 
But we don't know some of the other speculations, and they become guesses at that point. What we do know from the text is Vashti refuses to come. She won't come, and the king gets really peeved. The last part of verse 12 is a, a bunch of words in Hebrew on top of each other. The king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. The Hebrew language is very colorful. And uh, we think of a person with their nostrils flared. That's how the Hebrew looked at a mad person. Their neck and their nostrils would be flaring and red. And it's like he was indignant. He was over the top. He was livid. He was furious. That would be the way we'd say it in English. He was really ticked off that she didn't show up. The impertinence of her refusing to come embarrasses him in front of his party. It embarrasses him in front of his princes. And word is going to spread as we'll see the story unfold. One minor detail that I did not know until recently studying this the phrase royal crown in verse 11 is unique in biblical Hebrew to the book of Esther. It's, only, it's found three times in the book, and that's all it's found. And we, when you and I think of a crown, I think of a, a gold metal object that sits on somebody's head with ornate stuff on it. Well, the Persian crown was more than likely cloth, like a turban. And the queen's crown would have probably been a cloth turban with jewels that would have been attached to it. So it's just a good picture of what he's asking for. The text says she was beautiful. I want to show her off, and I want her to wear a royal crown. I want her to put her best on and come out and let everybody see her. And that's the refusal that he gets. Well, the king gets angry, and the king gets revenge. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times. Let me pause for a second. Your Bible probably has an M dash there, a long dash or something there. And then if you go to verse 15, it might have another M dash, a long dash there. Now, from verse 13 in the middle of the verse to the beginning of verse 15 is a parenthesis. Let me read it without the parentheses and then go back and read it, including. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. You see my point? So we're going to read this long parenthesis, but the point is he's got a question about law and custom. Now let's see what the parenthesis says. For it was the custom of the kings, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice. And they were close to him, Kishara, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. Parenthesis close. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Am I making sense? So we've got this question posed. What do, what's the law say? What do we do? Uh, according to the law, what's to be done? Now, this long parentheses are the men that he's speaking to. Let's take it apart. First of all, the wise men. The term wise men, we're in a Persian audience, not a Hebrew audience. You have to keep that in mind. So let's go back to Daniel, and let's go back to Egypt a little bit. When, in, in Daniel's time, when the uh, Pharaoh had dreams, uh, the king has dreams, he dispatches for the sorcerers, the magicians, and the conjurers. Those were the wise men. 
If we go back to Egypt, when the Pharaoh had his nightmares, he wants the magicians and the congress to come tell him what to do, interpret his dreams, right? So you've got an Egyptian glimpse of culture and a Persian glimpse of culture. Here a Persian glimpse. So these were wise men the way we think of Hebrew wisdom or New Testament wisdom. These were cultural. The next part of the phrase is who understood the times. Now in your Bible you probably have a little cross-reference that takes you to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32 about the sons of Issachar, the men who understood the times and what Israel should do. I have heard more bad theology preached on that verse than probably any verse in the Bible. It's like the sons of Issachar. We need sons of Issachar today. We need these, these visionary people that can look into the future. They're futurists. Today we'd probably call them thought leaders. One of my favorite terms, thought leader. What in the fat is a thought leader? Would some explain this to me? The sons of they're thought leaders. What does that mean? I came up with an idea. I'm a thought leader. Woo. Write a book. Make money. Okay, sorry. I'm a little cynical at times if you hadn't picked that up. It's not what the text says. Men who understood the times simply means they knew the law. Look at verse 13. The king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew the law and justice. And it's the same is true for Issachar. This is Persian. It's the same true for the sons of Issachar. They knew God's word. So if the king's got a question, a theological question, let's pull the people that know God's law together. The scribes and Pharisees are often berated by Christ as being hypocrites. He never doubted their Bible knowledge. Scribes and Pharisees were brilliant attorneys, Jewish attorneys, who knew God's word better than the average person. That's why they were rabbis, rebbes. That's why they taught, because they studied the law of God. Uh, speaking of this without any predisposition, when the president has a problem, he assembles his legal team to say, what does the law permit me to do? What doesn't the law permit me to do? That's exactly what's happening here. So the next time you read Sons of Issachar, say, these were the men who knew God's word. They knew the law, the Levitical law, and they knew how to implement it. So now we're back to Persia. So as Hazuerus, what do I do that my wife's rebuffed me? What can I do legally? Pull in the cabinet, pull in the legal team, and let's talk to them and see what I can do legally. So these are men that are close and they're trusted. There's a phrase here about they're close to his face. They saw the face of the king. That's an imagery used throughout the Old Testament in a rich way. Uh, hands, face, and eyes are imagery of intimacy. When Jacob and Esau are estranged, if you study that passage, and they're reunited after they've got flocks and herds and families and grandchildren, and they're reunited, the passage is rich with eyes and face and hands and looking at each other because it's an intimacy. So what the text is telling us here is these seven men were very close to the king. They're trusted confidants of the king. So bottom line, verse 15, what do we do with Vashti since she has disobeyed the king? Memucan gives some counsel. Verse 16. In the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. 
this day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written by the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Memucan is shrewd. He inflames the situation where Vashti has not only wronged the king, she's affected everybody. Princes and other provinces and every woman in the country, they're going to go ballistic because of this if you don't do something. He's turning into a national mayhem over this one issue. The icing on the cake is Vashti can no longer come. Give her position to someone who's more worthy. And this sets up the beautiful irony and tension and suspense of the story of Esther. If you know the story already, it's a little bit like, oh, I know the story. But if you, if you soak in the tension, who's, who, who is one who is more worthy? Yet to come, right? So the tension of the storyline is being built all along. Interesting to me, and perhaps you've already picked up on this, but Vashti is no longer called the queen after verse 17. From now on, queen is conspicuously absent in the record. She's just Vashti. She's already lost her title as far as Mimimucan is going to have it. She's humiliated the king, so the king's going to humiliate her. Uh, the tension and suspense of the story, what kind of woman will take her place? Now let's try to keep this together. He sends for Vashti. She rebuffs him. She won't come. Her rebellion is going to cause all women in the whole kingdom to rebel against their husbands. You can just say, I'm not going to cook. Vashti said, no, get your own supper. It's a national mayhem. We got to do something about it. So Mimucan comes up with this harebrained idea, but you got to write the law. The lawyers he counseled said nothing about what provisions were there. They said, you make a new law. Sound familiar? You see, laws are made whimsically and for the wrong reason throughout all time. It's not just in our, in our time frame. People who have power make whimsical laws out of petty reasons. And that explains a lot of our situation. Well, he dismisses Vashti. He's going to send this law to all men and women in the provinces to find a better woman. One commentator in summing this up says, this line of thinking is further evidence that they were indeed drunk might be on to something. <laughs> Mimimucan is at least a troublemaker. He may be the kind of person that likes to see others destroyed, which would add all to the narrative. Let me give you just a sidebar point here that is applicable, whether you're a leader, a manager, a business owner, you're in a position of authority, you know, with a church, a school, an organization, company, never make policy in the middle of a battle. You don't make a rule or a policy when you have a conflict in your office. You don't make a, a new set of, you know, this is our company policy now when you have one or two people doing something wrong. A lot happens when you do that. You're overreacting to one thing. Well, this employee is always like, we're going to send out a memo. You've got to be in the office by 8 o'clock or. No, you deal with the one person. You don't make a policy. Because if you start making policies for those situations, you're soon going to be a bureaucratic, administratively driven organization that's run by policy, not by the vision of the organization or the school or the company. And it happens all the time. 
We tried to operate under a, I, I, not new with me, heard it years ago, policy is what we always do, policy is what we never do. Now in a perfect world, you can't always reduce it to that clear of a notion, but that's a good way of thinking about it. Before we implement a new law, before we implement a policy, is this, are we willing to say we're always going to do this and we're never going to do this? Because that thing keeps you from getting administratively heavy because once an organization, a school, a church gets run by policies and administration, you're no longer doing the vision you started out to in the company, organization, or church. You're now being managed by rules, which explains our country's government. We are a country of laws and rules, not of vision, not of pioneering, not of you know, the ability for you to go work and live and do what you want anymore. We become a rule driven nation and culture, which is part of the reason we're in that mess. This is all for free. Now, back to the text. <laughs> the edict is given in verses 20 and 22. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husband, great and small. <laughs> this word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. I guess they didn't have very vocal feminists in the days of the monarchy. You see, a grandiose policy needs a grandiose public relations campaign. You're going to have this, you can't refuse your husband anything, then you better have a big splash in PR. All provinces, all peoples, all languages under our umbrella because we want everybody to know the king's not going to put up with his queen telling him no. A little bit over the top, you think? Way over the top. We get a glimpse of the Persian trappings, the self-importance. Uh, this king is trying to save his wounded dignity and he's got seven very poor advisors giving him really poor counsel, but nevertheless, he implements it. Seeking the replacement in chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of the kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, and to the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the place of Ashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly." Uh, verse 1 hints to me a bit of regret on the part of Ahasuerus. He remembered Vashti and what he'd done. A little haunting there. As his, his anger's cooled down, you see, you don't make a policy in the heat of battle, and he did. And I'm rethinking that. Maybe that wasn't the best way to handle that situation. So, having good aides around you, what do we do now? How are we going to help the king? These are not necessarily the, the best of aids, but nevertheless, it's what he's got. Baldwin writes, from the point of view of the girls involved, this is no enviable fate. Despite the glamour of travel and the possibility of becoming the royal spouse, 
for them to send emissaries out throughout the land and to look for young virgins that are pretty and say, we're taking her back to the citadel at Susa, sorry. It harkens back to when Samuel was interfacing with the people, Israel and God, and they wanted a king, quote, to be like other nations, the exact thing God didn't want them to do. He wanted to be their king. Oh, we want our own king so we can be like other nations. And Samuel warned them best he could. He tried to instruct them best he could. They weren't going to pay attention. They wanted to have a king, by golly. And so God tells Samuel, give them a king. But tell them he's going to take their land, their children, their flocks, their vineyards, their herds. He's going to have to build an army. And he's going to take it from the people to build this kingdom they so want. And they were happy to do it. And of course, it doesn't work very well. Saul's a head and shoulders taller than everybody. Walks like a king, talks like a king, looks like a king. A miserable failure from the moment he's picked. That's your king. Go fight the giant. Hides in the luggage rack. I don't want a thing to do with the giant. I'm not going to do that. And from then on, the monarchy is established. David, of course, will be a good king. Josiah will be a good king. He'll have a handful that are good for a season of time. But the monarchy becomes divided. Israel and Judah are split. They fight with one another. Tribes kill each other. Civil war happens within God's people. And the whole thing was an unmitigated disaster. There's only one king. We're in a culture of kingdoms. And kingdoms don't work very well because there's only one king who can indeed rule power the way it was intended. Well, Ahasuerus listens to his attendants. They're going to go out and get all these young women and bring them back. Um, the verse, verse 2 shows we've basically got a kingdom-wide beauty pageant going on. He guy is going to be the one who grooms the women for the royal harem. Uh, the word cosmetic is quite interesting in Hebrew. It means to rub something on. I guess not much has changed. And the matter pleased the king. That phrase shows up nine times in your Old Testament. Seven of them in the book of Esther. And the matter pleased the king. It is good to be the king, right? Do whatever you want. Well, Esther is a story of God's providence in a broken culture. Broken people in a broken world. It is a story of faithful Jews, one or two, who do the right thing at no small risk to their life. A couple of lessons from this passage this morning. Having to do, essentially, with the idea of courage. How do we have courage? Uh, number one, when do you have to exercise courage? Uh, Vashti and Esther are, in a sense, and they're the same issue. They both exhibit extraordinary courage at a time when no small risk to their own lives. Vashti, of course, refusing the king. Uh, Esther, later in chapter 5, verse 1, we'll see where her entrance makes such a big issue. So you've got these two women that are set apart as women of great courage doesn't mean they weren't afraid before they moved in courage. It just means they exhibited courage. I like what Brenneman writes. Vashti's courage must be acknowledged. She defied her king and her husband by refusing to shame herself in public. Whatever else can be said of her, she was brave. Her act of courage refusing to present herself to the king is equaled by Esther. She enters the king's presence without permission. Both Vashti and Esther made plain that the king was not in charge, but human dignity. Ultimately, the question of authority is at stake. So put it this way. 
I don't know, for you or me, if we're ever going to be in a situation like this. In small ways, we all will be, but in big ways, I don't know. But there may well be a time, as a believer in Christ, where you're going to have to exhibit courage to do the right thing in the right way as a broken, redeemed person in a broken context. And how you do that is critical. It may be a no small cost to you. It might be your job. It might be a promotion. It might be a, a great sale that you are about to either receive or get uh, or give. And you have to, by principle, say, I can't do this. It's wrong. I knew men in the military who were asked to do something unethical by a commander, and they resigned the military because they were unwilling to do something that was unethical, that was illegal, that was, that was wrong. They said no. Now, our 239-year experiment continues to be intriguing to me. And I don't know what our future holds. I don't know what will happen in our lifetime or our children's or our grandchildren's. But I believe, and I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, I believe there will come a time when you're going to have to stand for your faith and it may cost you dearly. We see little shreds of it from time to time, but it sure seems like we've lost the battle at every fringe element and there's very few enclaves left to hunker down and, and hang on. And that's not necessarily the solution. If there is a solution, but the response of faith is, will I do the right thing in the right way and have courage no matter what? Will I speak truth in love? Am I able to muster up the courage to say, this could cost my job, but I will not do X. This might mean I lose this big contract, but I will not break that law. I won't do this against my God or other people. Our authority is Jesus Christ not the world. world's opinion is heavy. It's loud. It's deafening at times. It's relentless. God's word hasn't moved an inch. Hasn't budged an inch. So I either align myself with the truth of Scripture, trusting God's word, God's spirit, along with God's people, or I live on my own. It's really that simple for each one of us. How do we use the authority we're given? Do you have courage? Secondly, is a tangent of this, and that's for those of us who are in positions of power. Maybe you own your company. Maybe you manage people. Maybe you are a businessman or woman. Maybe you're successful and you command a lot of, of capital. You manage money. You manage other individuals. How will you use that power? You can assemble people around you to tell you what you want, as Ahasuerus obviously does, or you can go against the tide and do the right thing in the right way, Broken people, redeemed in a broken culture, the world, a fallen culture that's never going to be perfect. But can I live with a good conscience using my authority well, using your authority well? McConnell says it this way, what or who really controls what happens in the world? Who should be obeyed when and at what cost? It is not the power of a human that should be adhered to, but the will of God. Earthly authority leads too readily to pride. Those who bear it, earthly authority in wisdom, know it is rightly accompanied by humility. Listen again. Earthly authority leads too readily to pride. When we have power, we can do what we want. Living in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and being privileged to meet some people that were two, three, four-star generals um, there's an acronym they use, R-H-I-P. Rank has its privilege. 
And the men that uh, introduced me to different things never broke the law, but we never waited in a line because RHIP, we walked to the front of the line. We didn't wait for the, the, the transit to come by. They had a private car. Most Air Force uh, stars had private jets. RHIP, rank has its privilege. They want to go to Colorado. They got their own Gulfstream to fly from Andrews to Colorado. No big deal. Fill out the form and go. RHIP. But you can misuse it. You can abuse it. Listen again. Earthly authority too readily leads to pride. Those who bear it in wisdom, you bear your authority in wisdom, it is rightly accompanied by humility. So there's a humbleness about it. Some of the most powerful people I was privileged to be around, and perhaps you can tell stories as well, um, I like the ones that are humble. I like the ones that I meet that ask questions about others and it's not all about them. In fact, the ones that come in and take over the room and it's all about them, I don't really care for them too much. They're a dime a dozen. But the ones who wield power with humility, how do you wield power? In your home, in your marriage, where you work, the people who you manage, the people who are employed by you, the people that you report to. How do they deal with it and how do you respond? Most of us in this room have some authority over others, even your children. You have authority over your kids <laughs> till they're teens. Good luck. Well, that's why prayer was invented. God said prayer because there's nothing else to do. I was in a different chair, a different season of life, and um, in a big responsible position, and I had a cabinet. And at one point I had a man come into my office and he, he was not an arrogant man. He wasn't a bravado. He wasn't a difficult person. He was a very loyal guy. Came into my office and he was upset. He was a little anxious. And long story short, he said, Michael, either stop saying this or start doing that. But I see you saying this a lot and you're not doing it. And if I'm seeing that, others are too. So stop saying this or start doing that. And he was exactly right. I said, thanks for telling me. And you know what? He became my inner circle. Now, we became friends. We've been friends for 20 plus years now. And it's been rich because I always tell him, I would trust you with my wife, my children, and my checkbook. Because you had the courage to come and tell me something that I wasn't aware. I wouldn't pay attention to. I needed you to tell me that. That's the kind of men and women you want around you. And if somebody hasn't come, you in leadership, if somebody hasn't come and told you something like that lately, you need to evaluate who's around you. Because none of us is above the need for wisdom and encouragement sometimes to say, stop saying that or start doing this. If you're a leader, you can walk into a room, you can say something incidental, off-the-cuff, half-hearted, sarcastic, joking, and you can quake the organization unintentionally just because you say something off the top of your head or something flippant. You can also be as conspicuously guilty by not saying anything when you're in a situation because I want to know what's the leader think, what's the manager think, what's the owner think, what's mom think, what's dad think. It's an interesting principle, isn't it? Earthly authority leads too readily to pride. Those who bear it in wisdom, 
No, it is rightly accompanied by humility. You have someone that will tell you the truth, not just tell you what you want to hear. Let's make the king happy. Maybe we need to help the king in a different way. These aren't the primary characters of the story, but these are lessons we can certainly learn as we go through the book of Esther. It takes courage to stand by faith. It takes courage and humility to lead with authority. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you in ancient stories. We learn nothing much has changed. People are deceived by power. People can be petty. People can be motivated to make ridiculous laws rather than doing what they're supposed to be about. Help us to be the kind of men and women that although broken and sinful and fallen, we live humbly. We live dependent on your word and your spirit along with your people in a context that's fallen and broken, knowing it's never going to be perfect. But we want to serve you with our best. We ask in Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.